0: Chickadee Prince Books is the home of great fiction and nonfiction of all genres. Visit us at chickadeeprince.com. That's Chickadee the Bird, Prince the Son of a King. Declare your independence. <sighs>
1: In 1974, I traveled to New York City at the behest of J.P. Morgan, supposedly to make my name in a Wild West extravaganza that Morgan would finance, with beautiful sharpshooter Emelina by my side. I soon found myself locked up in Wyoming for a passion crime that I didn't commit, then swept up in a prison break and fleeing for my life across the West, haunted, as always, by my ghosts and by my memories of my love. Lucy Billings. I have my ghosts. In a way, I am a ghost myself.
0: The Strange and Astounding Memoirs of Waddle a radio drama based on the novels by Stephen S. Drachman, starring Sal Rendino and produced by Danielle Wu. This week, Episode 7 A Free Man. <laughs>
1: We hit the mountains like satellites into orbit, vanishing into the trees, kicking just a few more miles out of our pitiable, exhausted horses, stopping only when we reached an abandoned, heavily overgrown logging camp high in the peaks. The camp was decrepit, two long rows of abandoned wooden shacks fallen into disrepair. Each of us grabbed shelter from the cold, sitting hunched beneath frozen and rotting wooden beams. I looked around for Emelina, who had promised, in her thoughts, to meet me here. Shortly after our arrival, a squat former pickpocket, who'd made the rank of corporal in the Sidonian Army, handed out new uniforms to each of us. Rugged cowboy gear for the ride ahead. Dapper go-to-meeting clothes to help us each blend in as gentlemen, or at least dandies, when we arrived in a new town. The same to Tang, a man as far as any of us were concerned. As always, the other fugitives spoke in hushed and eager tones about the great village of Cydonia. These men, some of whom left behind fingers or arms or feet in the last war, speculated impatiently on the great social revolution that would soon sweep America right out from under its witless ruling classes. I was all for that, but I didn't think Daryl Fawley was the one to lead us. I was just done fighting the Civil War. I didn't have another great war in me so soon after the last one. And I didn't think the underclasses of America were up for it either. Economic depression or not. I slipped away from camp and stomped through the crunch of the hardened snow to a cliff's edge. And from there I looked down on a landscape of white-tipped pines sliced into bits by the ice-filled river. And beyond that... The dark stone walls of the penitentiary, a black scar burned into the frozen mountain peaks in the far distant west. My night in the mountain mining camp passed without incident, and one hour before dawn, an emissary arrived from Sidonia. A burly but soft-spoken man named Monroe, who trotted into the ramshackle village on a big black horse. We lined up to greet him, but when I introduced myself, concern crossed his face. Your Watto Hugh, the great frontier hero. Uh, The stories are greatly exaggerated, many of them, of course, flattering, but completely untrue. While others have some basis in fact, but were incorrectly reported by the newspapers with respect to certain details. And furthermore, sir, as, as you may have heard, I've recently fallen from my professed greatness. Though I should add that the charge leveled against me to the extent that I understand it is completely... Shut up, Mr. O'Hugh. I don't
0: trust him. I won't have him riding with us. And I won't allow him into Sidonia. Who will kill him? Let I can do, do it. it.
1: I'll take him. Billy Golden, where did you come from?
0: You're his friend, Billy. Billy, we can't trust you. I will
2: kill him. You can't trust me. I have no friends.
1: This was Madame Tang. She lifted an enormous hog leg pistol against which she seemed to shrink into the cold dirt. The other fugitives moved away from her, nervous and a little frightened. All right, Tang. Take him away. I don't want to watch this, and I don't want his blood stain in our camp. Yes, sir. Remember where you leave the body. Tang turned to me, and her face was stony, but there was a smile somewhere in her head, in some nerve-ending or synapse, and I heard her voice inside me, speaking to me as Emelina had once done.
2: Don't worry, O'Hugh. Don't worry.
1: Pushing our way through the closely-packed spruce and fir, we marched over a small hill sandwiched between sheer granite cliffs, then over another hill the clamor of the mining camp growing more remote. Tang was always a few feet behind me, but still I could somehow feel her pistol aimed at me, tickling my back. After 20 minutes or so, we advanced to a dead end, a frozen clearing in the mountain wall surrounded on three sides by cliff. I turned around, my hands above my head. Behind Tang, a slight crouched figure scrambled out of the brush almost without a sound fluidly raised a shotgun and smacked the barrel against the back of Tang's head.
3: Hands in the air.
1: It was Emelina, my rescuer, my fearless hero. She'd followed me to Wyoming, hunched in the dark and watched the prison burn, finally tracking the band of outlaws through the mountains ahead of any lawmen or Laramie vigilantes. I wondered how I could have ever doubted her. Emelina's horse shuffled nervously behind her, ready to gallop on her command. Emelina held her shotgun tightly against the stubble on the back of Tang's snow-white scalp. Tang raised both arms, her pistol dangling from her fingers.
2: I won't harm him.
1: Tang turned, her hands still above her head, until she faced Emelina. A look of some significance passed between them, and then Emelina lowered her shotgun. She turned to me and she walked a few paces in my direction.
3: Tang doesn't mean you any harm. Tang won't hurt either
1: of us. Keep your gun up! Emelina! Emelina remained motionless, her shotgun idly aimed at the tangled root of a nearby tree that grew parallel to the jagged cliff wall. What? Tang's gang wants to see my dead body. She can't return to them without my hide. Will she abandon her holy quest so readily? Are we three to run off together? Will we live as fugitives in the woods with a little cabin, a brood of hopping outlaw children? At these words, Tang, in one swift motion, lifted her gun and pulled the trigger. Ah! My forehead split in two, and I wondered, not for the first time, if this were what it felt like to die a terrible death. I staggered backward, skull aflame, and Tang's angry shriek echoed through the trees.
2: Against the Glare of Darkness by Mark Laporta is the gripping science fiction trilogy that critics have called an engrossing far-future reality of galaxy-spanning civilization that combines the best of space opera and science fiction. Read Probability Shadow, Entropy Refraction, and coming soon, Infinity Afterglow, the exciting series conclusion. Get your copy today at your local bookstore or wherever books are sold. Don't make jokes about a woman's children.
1: We all sat together beside the dead body his head bloody and empty. Tang didn't look at me. Her gaze was fixed to one dead hand, which was limp and bluish and burning a fist-shaped dent in the thawing ice. Explain this again?
3: Everyone is born with 21 essences. You remarkably have learned to use 12 of yours without any instruction or tutoring. This... this... Dead body here, lying face down in the ice. This is one you don't use, don't need, and won't
1: miss.
2: This is one that could have wound up hurting you.
1: Is it like killing? Is removing an essence like you're killing a person? Mm,
2: It is, a little bit.
1: The body, all six foot three of him, lay flat on his stomach in the mud, his blood flowing steadily into the dark red snow. Poor fella. Maybe it was a bad idea to shoot me in the face. You have to deliver them a body to prove my death.
2: No, I shot off his forehead. Face is
3: recognizable.
1: Ugh. My god.
3: Tang knows what she's doing. This is a good way to fake a death. In
2: fact, the only infallible method. Ask Billy if you see him again. He faked his death six times. Three times to get rid of bad essence, like taking out a tooth that aches. Twice to save his life, once just for fun, just to read the obituaries. Billy regretted that last one. Too many old ladies cried at his coffin. He felt sorry for them. He wouldn't try anything like that again. This kind of magic isn't meant for fun.
1: All right. What now? Tang spread out a map on the rocks
2: efficient escape route through the west and then the southwest, which pushes you into the Utah and then Arizona territories. Vast deserted areas where the Sedonian influence for the time being is little felt, where an outlaw can settle down for a time in anonymity.
1: She tossed me a small cloth bag tied at the top.
2: Here's money. Billy and I and the rest of the gang are heading hundreds of miles to the northeast, deep into Montana. Avoid Montana entirely.
1: Is your location something you really want me and Emmelina to know? And why do you deign to help us at all, now that Monroe has officially branded me an enemy of the coming revolution?
2: Do you think I am being nice? You swore allegiance to Billy Golden and his cause. We need you alive and healthy and waiting for the day that Billy calls on you to serve. I don't know why, but Billy thinks you are important. We have a deal,
1: Waohu. The two of us, on Emelina's patient black horse, crept nervously through the mountains, until, sufficiently east of Laramie that we no longer imagined the law sniffing our tracks, we descended to the Medicine Bow Range, bought another horse from a ranching village, then galloped along the rolling grasslands following the Oregon Trail, almost to the border of Utah Territory. Every few minutes, I scanned the horizon in all directions, looking for small bouncing specks against the open sky, which might signal that a riding party had picked up on our escape route. Emelina and I stayed ready to cut north again into the mountains, but except for some lonely homesteaders' hovels, standing forlorn in a sea of empty plains, we'd hardly have known that this was the Wyoming of the 19th century, and not some far earlier era. Under a small cluster of trees beside the bank of a trickling stream, we set camp for the night. By the light of the fire huddled over our dusty map, we charted the course of the months ahead. A trek across Utah Territory's brutal and endless desert basins and its Green River valleys, followed by a nervous search for potential enemies from atop the lonely mesas that looked down on Arizona Territory's empty plains. We would never dare travel by rail, lest a traveler spot my wanted poster at his local train station. The more we planned, the further away our goal seemed.
3: As I see it, we have a few options. Plan one, we can follow Tang's directions, pick up a few unbranded strays, and settle down inconspicuously on the prairie.
1: I see some appeal in this scenario. Not a lot. I'm not a real outlaw, and so I have no alliances with the underground. Were I to be recognized, I'd have a hard time developing trust, and the leaders of any bandit enclave might consider it to their economic and security interests to turn me over to the law. A lengthy or permanent sojourn south of the border, where Tang's money might really buy a fresh start, might be the most sensible plan.
3: Or, you could head out and I could travel back east as a liaison to Morgan. He seemed to like me, right, what? I-, I could argue that you've done all you can, that-, that you don't expect payment for your exploits, but that you've been shot off a building, slithered down prison walls, half-frozen a mountain river, and took a bullet in the head. And that out of gratitude for a noble effort or penance for the injustice of it all, he might see the charges dropped.
1: This sounds fine, but it's easier to railroad a guy into prison on trumped up charges than unrailroad him. Probably not worth Morgan's trouble. He's more likely to use you as bait to catch me than to set me free.
3: I know what. I'm honestly ready to consider settling down on the range with you or even passing time in Bolivia. But I won't wind up there as a victim of circumstance. What do you mean? Rough times squeezed me to the Kansas prairies and a life that yielded nothing but a hate filled union and a couple of boys. Probably wouldn't even recognize anymore. You understand what? You are still stewing over that infamous date, July 13th, 1863. Now, it was more than 11 years ago, but it burns in your mind as though it were yesterday drove you to enlist in the Union Army, to fight in the Civil War, you hoped to die, didn't you? In July 1863, did Lucy Billings desert you?
1: Riots were sweeping the streets.
3: But Lucy Billings, did Lucy Billings leave you because she just didn't give a damn anymore?
1: New Yorkers with no sympathy for President Lincoln protested the draft, set buildings aflame, chased the wealthy out of the city to huddle in fear behind the locked doors of their vast summer retreats. Except for the taverns, which did bustling business keeping the enraged rabble enraged, and some terrified and endangered colored New Yorkers with no place else to go, the entire borough closed down and moved out. I spent July 13 facing down the mob, trying to save innocent lives, without much success, I might add.
3: Without any success, Watt, which is what I might add. It was an impossible goal, and you knew it.
1: I saved a couple of them. What else do you think I could have done?
3: Another man could have run and hit, but not you. It was your moment of pure, hopeless, crazy greatness. Your moment of history. And you rose to it. How could I have turned you away after that?
1: How do you know all this?
3: How do I know anything? I just know, Watt. I've known about you from the beginning.
1: You know about my ghosts? You know everything? I know
3: about your ghosts. They protected you from the bandits that night in Blue Rock. Don't think I didn't notice. But like the innocently callous children that they were in life, they deserted you on the tenement rooftops. Who would you be, Watt O'Hugh? without your little ghosts.
1: And you believe me?
3: No. I don't believe in ghosts at all. Or God. Or heaven. Or meaning. Or purpose. It gives you courage to believe that your ghosts are there protecting you. But even with apparitions swirling about you, you're still haunted most of all by the ghost of Lucy Billings in her long faded 1863 incarnation. You survived the riots, and when the smoke cleared, the last fire was put out. The rioters returned to their homes to sober up and prepare to fight the Confederacy. You found yourself unexpectedly alone. Lucy Billings left Manhattan. Left her furnished flat at the Fifth Avenue Hotel. Deserted her benefactors and her various devoted lovers. One and all. Not least... Lucy Billings, without a tip of her ostrich-plumed hat to your heroism, had forsaken the one man who'd sworn always to love her more than any of the others could. Why did she do that?
1: After that terrible Monday, she turned up in England, married to a man named Daryl Fawley. He was in his forties, not a handsome fellow, an English aristocrat, and mid-level embassy functionary. Then in the 1870s, they both disappeared thoroughly. She became something of a media sensation.
3: She sold newspapers, starred in dime novels and Sunday sermons, and inspired theatrical presentations. Yes, I heard a word or two about your Lucy Billings.
1: And her husband turned outlaw, as you may know. He's now working with Alan Jerome on the Sidonian movement. It's some kind of egalitarian social cause. Alan Jerome stole J.P. Morgan's money, so, so I understand why she would be attracted to their movement. But I have my doubts about their sincerity, Alan Jerome and Daryl Fawley.
3: Surely Lucy would not have fled, even given the disasters of the moment, had she truly loved the young Watt. Without so much as a, a letter of farewell... In spite of all the circumstantial evidence of her casual betrayal, you still need more proof.
1: The flame's burning out. The night is getting colder.
3: We'll toss more kindling on when we get back. The whole journey will take a second. Less than a second. No time at all. What? You can't change anything. You must realize that. Where we're going, you can observe, but you can't change history. Do you understand?
1: What is this? A seance?
3: Close your eyes. Soon you will be back in July 1863. Soon you will be walking the Manhattan streets as they were before the war.
1: I don't believe you. How is this possible?
3: Understanding it doesn't help. Not any more than understanding Newton's law of gravitation helped you keep your balance when you cycled down Riverside Drive with Lucy. If you've done this once, doing it again is easy. Just hold my hand. There. Good. Try to listen to me. To my heart. To the sound of my auricles and ventricles. Follow the electricity flowing across synapses to my cerebrum. Listen to the things you don't ordinarily hear.
1: I didn't know exactly what she meant. Those long, scientific body words were alien to me at the
0: time. But I caught her meaning, mostly.
3: Follow me down the rabbit hole.
0: This program starred Sal Rendino as Wato Hugh and featured Emily Dalton, Jordan Gwizdowski, Morrison James, Arnold Kim, Annie Mack, Anthony Tether, Mabel Thomas, and Eric Yang. Theme song and incidental music composed by Derek K. Miller, with additional incidental music by Danielle Wu. The strange and astounding memoirs of Wato Hugh was produced by Danielle Wu.